Hello and welcome to episode 200 of Constructing Comics, a podcast building stories one page and one panel at a time. On this episode, we have an interview with Joshua Starnes, writer of The Box, coming from Red 5 Comics in August 2021. This is Matt and I'm joined by Constructing Comics co-host Noah. Hey there. Joshua, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, could you give us a brief bio about yourself and then follow that up with a elevator pitch for this book? Sure. So I have been a, uh, a working film critic for about uh, 15 years. Uh, and in the process of that, I uh, uh, met a man named Scott Chitwood, who's also a, a film critic for a, a sister publication who was uh, uh, in mid 2000s. He told me he was planning to start his own comic book company, um, Red Five Comics. And um, I had uh, stayed in him over the years and uh, thrown him some ideas or helped him with uh, some back office material uh, <clears throat> over the time since they, they launched. And in um, 2015, I brought my first project to them, a comic I had, I had written and, and uh, gotten together called Spook. Uh, and uh, it came out that year. And uh, in the, uh, about the time that we were getting ready to put it out from Red 5, they asked me if I actually wanted to uh, come on board uh, as a partner to help them uh, pick up some of the load, some of the publishing load as their uh, library was getting larger and they were doing more and more work and looking to expand the company. So I did that uh, in 2015. So about the last six years, I've been one of the co-publishers um, at uh, Red 5 Comics, had a lot of uh, interesting opportunities. Uh, that way I did uh, some licensed comics that we did with uh, Netflix, which gave me the opportunity to write um, to write uh, a couple of animated series for Netflix or a series called Kulapari. Uh, that uh, that uh, Mark Hamill did a voice for, so I actually got to write dialogue that, that Mark Hamill said. So I'm gonna check that off of my nice. bucket list. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and uh, and I have been kind of the last couple of years bogged down with uh, uh, trying to to keep the the company rolling and trying to keep it growing, um, and I hadn't had as much chance to um, actually get back behind, you know, get my pen out and actually start writing again, which is what I, I kind of got into into comics to begin with was wanting to, to write and publish my own story. So I like dedicated over the, the pandemic, I had like three or four different, uh, different outlines sitting and sort of over the pandemic, I, I set myself down, like, I'm going to, I'm going to write one of these this year. I'm going to get it done this year. And it's going to come out uh, next year. And so, and that ended up being the box. Cause that was the one that uh, as I was going through the outlines, I could actually start to turn into a finished comic. You know, the, the character voices came very quickly. So I, I wasn't having to struggle with who, what, what they were supposed to be doing or how they were supposed to sound like, which sometimes for me can be, can be a bit of a struggle. It actually, it wrote itself very quickly from, from the outline. So that, that was the one. Nice. And uh, you, you mentioned that this is the, the newest book, The Box. Can you give us the, the elevator pitch for that? Yeah, it's about a, it's very heavily inspired by, um, by sort of classic film noir, both of the 30s, but, of, uh, uh, but also kind of like the 70s and the 80s as well, that, that sort of grimy detective story. So it's about a, a private detective named uh, Leo Bloom, who has, um, in his journeys, at some point prior to, to the series starting, he has found a magic box that will, you know, give you uh, within reason, anything that you want. All you have to do is think about what you want and reach in and take it out. That's the way it's supposed to work. He's not very good at it. So sometimes it sort of gives him what it thinks he wants or what it thinks he should have. So he, sometimes he gets what he wants out of it. And sometimes he has to like cut, sort of cock an eyebrow and go, well, what is this? What am I supposed to do with this? But it has given him an edge, uh, at, you know, uh, as a private eye, he's been able to, you know, to develop a, a real reputation as being the guy who can crack the, the cases nobody else can, because he has, he has an edge now. Um, but uh, um, along the way, he has suddenly very recently discovered that uh, the box had a lot of previous owners who really liked the idea of having something that you can just take whatever you want, whatever you can imagine out of, and they, they want their property back. So, uh, he has been uh, at the, the start of our story. He has um, been just recently cleared his name from being framed by the mob because the mafia wants uh, used to be one of the owners of the box and uh, wants it back. And now he's getting ready to find himself in very similar, hot, worse hot water again. Is the name of the main character an homage to the producers or is that just a coincidence? It's actually an homage to what the, the name of the producers is an homage to, which is the main character from Ulysses by James Joyce. And, oh, okay. Uh, from that. See, I'm so uncultured. Thank you for educating <laughs> me. Um, I should have uh, said the 
but that's a that's an awesome pitch but i had to ask that first so then i could get into it but um i like how your log line for the you the the pitch includes so many noir archetypes like you know it seems like a lot of people misunderstand noir like especially like the core characters of the noir is that like the detectives are rarely like guys that are together you know that Mm -hmm. kind of thing so you having this sort of like loser be at the center of it is so authentic to noir so did you have like the full script like everything in there um before you gave it to an artist or did an artist come on with you and develop this character or anything like that while you were making it i had a full script although this is the first time i have uh i've written what you might call a marvel style because I, I i usually i write um, very full script, which I'm sure my artists love getting like this 50 page script with these giant panel descriptions. Uh, this time I, I had, I, I did have the outline completely done and I, I had um, the script completely done, but I, I was working with a, a new artist, a really, really talented guy named um, Raymond Estrada, uh, who just graduated from the Kubert school. He, he sent, uh, he sent us uh, his portfolio uh, in his like last semester, and uh, and he and I were talking about it while he was he was doing um, his finals, and um, so we just, I decided to like let's ha- take some freedom, uh, especially with the layout and with the the look. So he had a lot of freedom on what uh, what everybody was going to look like. There's only a couple of characters where I was very like it needs to be this, um, but especially so I had uh, my script was very loose. I had all the beats and all the dialogue, and that was done before I gave him the, the first issue. Uh, there was some rewriting that, that happened along the way, but, but rather than doing some very detailed uh, page breakdowns, I was basically given like, this is basically what happens in this page. You figure out how many panels you're gonna use uh, to do that. Like this is, these are the important things that need to be on this sheet. And this is the dialogue that needs to kind of fit into this page. You figure out um, exactly how you want to get to that. And he delivered that. And some of it was stuff that I, you know, is exactly what I was looking for. Some of it, I was like, oh, I would never have thought to do that in a million years. And then it was a very interesting process getting ready for lettering. I had to basically go back and write it again because I had like one idea of, you know, okay, this isn't going to fit. This is going to fit. This needs to move to another page now. And, um, and, uh, but it still is basically what I wrote at the end of the day. That's so cool. And that's got to be like, I, I wonder like how, like how versatile that has to make you as a writer, you know, that you have to roll with the punches, but also is it kind of a situation where you're just inspired by the art that you're getting back to be like, okay, yeah, this is, yeah, this is now where the story's going. Yeah. And if I had to do it in the future, I might do, well, I, you know, have my script, but, but, you know, when I get back a first issue and see like, Oh, this has changed, this has changed, this has changed. Cause I kind of send them all for it at one time. It's a four issue series. Um, I, I would probably just do like one and, and then see what actually changes at, from the time that he's from the thumbnails to which we go over quite a bit to the finished pages and go, all right, all right, I'm going to rewrite part of the next issue before I send it to you and try that again. Um, it was very interesting because, you know, on my other ones, it was more a lot of the artists were, were just trying to do exactly what I had told them to do and fit that in there. And um and I, you know, I, I keep wondering in the back of my head, is that limiting what the actual sort of uh, uh, um, visual palette of it could be? You know, these guys, I, if I was, if I was a good visual storyteller, I would draw them, <laughs> but I can't draw. So, you know, and, and I like the idea of the collaboration a lot more. Like, you know, I, I have a, a clear idea of what it should be. This is who these characters should be. This is what they should be doing and where they're at. But, you know, I'm gonna, but throw me your ideas. Let me see, uh, what it looks like and we can make changes and alterations to make something where the words and the pictures fit really well. So that among other things, I don't have to write lots and lots of uh, caption boxes saying what is happening, you know, make sure it's that everything is, is really clear. And uh, it's something that I'm trying to do more of going, you know, for the next one, the next one after that, do more of that and make it more of a, as much as possible, a really collaborative process to, uh, to get the visual storytelling just right. Even if it's not necessarily what I originally first conceptualized in my mind that's really cool so during your intro you had mentioned that you know you you came up with this sort of goal for yourself during quarantine to to take one of these three um ideas that you had and and finish it was it 
the fact that the, the the box was the one that like sort of appealed to you the, that much or was it the, the that one that you had sort of processed or maybe had you know more documentation more notes on what, what was the process for picking the, the the box to be the the one that you tackled during quarantine it was it, it was closer already to being done and it was um and and it was ultimately easier to do i had i had another outline that will probably be one of my next things that I liked a little bit more. And I had actually started sitting down and trying to draft it first and, and I got really stuck and, uh, and I had set it aside and the box, the, the very first thing I written for the box, I had actually written several years ago uh, before I read, I had just written like an eight page. This is an introduction to the character. It was just an eight page short that introduced you to the, to the gimmick and to the character and to basically the world he lived in. Um, I had some idea about try, about making it uh, either into an anthology of of other stories um, or maybe as a, an, a free comic book day piece and, and uh, just to give it like a, a brief taste of it. So I had eight pages, you know, that were that were completely written um, for a long time. That so I knew to that, at least that point I knew who Leo was. I knew who his antagonists were, or at least his immediate ones were. I knew who his, you know, I knew what he sounded like. I kind of knew how how things with the box would work and, and kind of like some gags I wanted to do with the box. So there, there a lot of like that immediately. And the, the main female character, Claire, she's also in that eight page uh, story. So a lot of a lot of stuff that that the series expands on was in those original eight pages. So um, there's a lot that was just conceptualized already. So it was more of a matter of, right, I just need to pick them up and continue writing them their next adventures, but I know who they are as opposed to some of the other things that I have full outlines for, but it's very different, you know, it's very different going from an outline to once you start writing them, doing their actions and having their dialogue, characters very quickly pick up a life of their own. They start to change, they start to change the plot they're in. Sometimes, um, sometimes that can lead to a lot of snarls and you get stuck very badly. Uh, so I ended up getting stuck very badly. I came back to the box, I'm like, you know what, I have this eight pages. I have this really great artist. I should get the eight pages done now so I can have it and maybe have it for free comic book day. And since I'm doing that, why don't I just write this story? Because I know who this guy is and I know what his immediate next um, uh, conflict is after the eight page story. So I'm, I can just dive into that and I think I can write that and get it done very quickly. And, and, and I was, because um, except for one bit where Claire took over like an entire issue that she wasn't initially supposed to be in, um, it pretty much went exactly as I had had planned it. That's nice. very cool. With um, I, I, you brought it up earlier, and then you sort of brought it up now about sort of how characters sort of find their own voices as you start writing, you know, that kind of thing. Do, do you find that like their voices change when you get the art back? Like, you know, a character sort of talks one way, but then like you know, uh, once the art gets back, like they sort of speak a different way, or is that sort of kind of like what you were saying that like you know the artist gives you something unexpected um you know but yeah like you, know, you roll with it uh, yeah I guess I just was I'm interested in your thoughts on that it depends on how early I can I can uh work with an artist on a project like um like my, my book before the spook was written like years before I actually got it was just sitting in a drawer and I took it out and dusted it off when I finally started working with an artist but only a little bit so I mean, those characters just pretty much stayed the same all the way through um, uh, the box a, a bit, but I, I, I wrote all four issues mainly so that he wouldn't be waiting on me and I could keep feeding him pages just in case I did get stuck because um, that has happened to me before. So I wrote all four issues. So they had their voices definitely changed more, uh, especially Claire. Leo pretty much did the same, but Claire's voice really changed from, uh, when I first started writing issue one uh, all the way through to the end of the series. But I had, I had put all that together before I gave it to, um, to Raymond. So it wasn't changing too much as I was getting um, the art back from it. it. It pretty much looked like what it was, but there was another book I've been working on where I've actually been working with, I've been working with an artist at the conceptual phase before I've even started scripting it. So definitely the way he has been drawing character designs for characters that have only been in an outline that is changing the way that um, they talk. And, you know, I'm getting like, okay, now that I see what they look like, I have a different idea of who they are than I originally had. And that is changing things. So I think, and that's something I'm going to try and do more of. Um, as I do, if you try to connect with an artist way, you know, my, when I first started doing this, it was like, all right, 
I'm just going to write everything and I'll have complete scripts and then I will go find an artist and he will just turn my complete scripts exactly into, uh, into a finished product and, and that's fine. And now I, what I want is it to be more collaborative and try to connect with an artist early on, you know, tell him like, this is the general idea, see what his concept skips are like, all right, some of that is great. Some of that is not quite right. And we can mold it together. And that'll give me some ideas, some, some ideas of direction that these characters will go as I work on it. That's very cool. And um, I'm interested as to like your process in trying to create like unique voices for your characters. Um, do you have like a process with that or is that just sort of intuition once you start writing? It starts off as intuition, but I both go back and it's going to sound like way narcissistic, but it's not, I'm not doing it to pat myself on the back. I go back and I reread both uh, all, as I'm writing it, all the scripts for the current series, but I will go back and reread at least my most recent ones and mainly to see like, am I making this character talk exactly the same as my main character in the last book? Is, are all of my characters talking basically the exactly the same? Uh, and I have definitely done that in the past. So now it's something I, I tried to, uh, uh, the first time I write dialogue, I, just, I, I do kind of follow intuition, but when, I, but when I do that, a lot of people kind of end up sounding the same. So now I go back through and I'm, one thing I'm, I'm, as I'm writing character bios before I start drafting, I'm trying to think about what they are going to sound like and make each one of them sound distinct from one another but uh, it usually doesn't really kick in until i'm actually writing the actual story and then as, as they are doing something some some like major what's the first major important thing someone does that's usually when it's like all right this is who he is so he or she will talk like this so like reactions are a big part of that it sounds like then yeah that's yeah. cool so with the with the box um was when you first started thinking of this, did, where did you want to tell a detective story first, a noir story, or was like the the box? Was that like sort of the spark of the idea? Like which which came first, uh, detective, noir, or or the, the the this mysterious powered box? The box came first, and actually, okay. originally it was like a silly superhero story. Like it, it came down to a friend of mine and I were sitting down, and he was like, you know, what? we should just come up with like C level superheroes. You know, the guys who never, who, you know, who had been in like Great Lakes Avengers and write stories about them. So he came up with his, uh, the woman with a flying cape called the Harpy. And I came up with like, that's a box. It's just a dude, but he's got the magic box and he's taking it, you know. And that was all it was for, for a long time. And, and it just kind of, and it just was like one line. Um, and then when I came back to um, uh, start at, to actually try to turn that, I was like, one day I was like, I'm going to turn that into something. I don't know if it's going to be the silly superhero thing. But I'm gonna turn it into something, and um, and I was working on I was working on Spook actually, and and um, sort of the first intuition of what became uh, the uh, the uh, the eight page story sort of came to me. And in that um, it was more about gags that he was doing with the box, but it came out as I was like I was jotting it down so that I wouldn't forget it because if I don't write that stuff down immediately, I will forget it, and then I'm just gonna kick myself. Going, oh, I had a great idea a week ago, and I didn't write it down, and now it's gone. <laughs> So uh, as I was jotting it down, part of me was thinking like, well, what, how logically would this person get into this situation that he's having, he's getting shot at and someone's trying to burn him alive and, and he's having to, to, you know, try to save himself using this magic box. And it sort of worked its way backwards to detective. I'm like, all right, he's a, he's a private detective. And it's just sort of organically just from like what made that eight page story make sense, worked its way as much sense as you know the main the, the villain was a was a gangster with a tiger for a head so it, it's you know as much sense as it was going to make but yeah he's tony the tiger he was, he's the mob boss <laughs> and um and as much sense as something like that i'm i probably watched the tick way too much tick and read too much tick over the years but as much sense as something like that was going to make um uh, you know it led me to you know detective and then from that that sort of pushed to okay what is he like what what, what is the story like and then that turned the story into very much a detective story, but, but I like those stories. I've read a lot, probably too much um, Dashiell Hammett and, and Raymond Chandler. And I've watched um, not just kind of like the classic 30s and 40s more, but uh, I like a lot of the, uh, the 70s and 80s retakes on that sort of thing, especially like The Long Goodbye with, with Elliot Gould. And uh, so a lot of that was was floating around David Mamet movies. A lot of that stuff was kind of floating around um, in my head. 
and uh, and it just sort of naturally took over and merged because I was like uh, I didn't want it to be pure. I was like it has to be present day. I'm uh, trying to do period and magic and stuff. It might have been a bit too much to push a present day, but how would you know? But with that feeling of sort of a classic hard-boiled detective story. And with the box, when was the was it always the idea that uh, when the detective would reach in, he was kind of unsure of what he was going to get. When did yes. that sort of, that was always that, part of that, it? That was part of like, yeah, the original concept of a box. He could take whatever he wanted, but that's kind of like what made him, you know, see this, see was like that he, he didn't have, that whoever it was who was holding it didn't have like a lot of control over it. Um, that, uh, yeah, he would reach into it and pull out, but he did, he wouldn't necessarily know what it was that was going to come out and then you have to make the best of it. So that was always there. Actually that going back to what you just said, that was something that changed dramatically when I first saw the art. My original first conception of Leo was this older sort of middle-aged guy that was, you know, he's probably bald and maybe a little bit overweight. He'd been doing this for a while and found the box and he's using it and very much had sort of like this kind of clueless. You wouldn't think of him as a good detective vibe. And it was sitting in my head. I never wrote down what he looked like. So I just kind of, I gave it to I, I when I I told Raymond like these are these are the characters and this is what they're doing but I want you to figure out what they look like except for Tony the Tiger I told him exactly what he looked like um, and so his first drawing of Leo was totally different you know it's this kind of mid twenties maybe early thirties guy kind kind of hipstery with the the rosary beads and the, the Buddha beads on his wrist and uh, and I was like nope okay he's not the middle aged you know so he's totally different he's not this kind of um, not this kind of uh, middle-aged failure guy. He's much younger, maybe uh, a bit hipper guy. Who's um, who's um, um, and how did he get into this line of work? And how does he talk? So that did change what his character was like and how he talked. But definitely the idea of I don't know what I'm going to get out of it. It was that was part of like the original conception from the beginning. And and the is the box sort of aware of the the situation and the, the the circumstances so that like he the the detective might get something and at that point he doesn't realize what it's what it's for what it may happen and then like you know somebody comes through the door and he's like oh i have item x because i'm going to be able to do this is the, the is the box able to sort of um be like self-aware of the the situation or is the is it just completely almost like random like you know what you're getting out of it no it is definitely aware okay and there are times where you know he's questioning and one thing one of the things that that came out from very early from first writing of it that you can you'll see is that that he talks to it he treat you know he says it's his partner and he, he talks to it almost like it like it's a person um but um so and because he's definitely have, from having for a while he's he's noticed that it has its awareness. It will get sometimes it will give him what it knows that he needs, even if he doesn't know why he needs it okay. at first glance. And he's got to try to, to puzzle it out. And one of the the you know one of the core underlying themes of the series is also you know with that he's still been very very trusting of it and and assuming it's on his side. And and something that we bring up you know especially in this first issue is that not only does it have um, an awareness it has its own goals that that uh, are you know and so sometimes it may do things that will seem like they will help you and sometimes it will do things that will seem like it's going to uh, it where you could be in real trouble and it doesn't matter and, and it will use you to its own ends and, and maybe blindly trusting it uh, is not is not the best thing and owning it is not the best thing and so suddenly he's got to uh, he's starting to question can I can I trust my partner who's always been there for me and just happens to be a magic box and not a person so it's like somehow also a buddy cop story as well yes. which is pretty great that's awesome <laughs> so um not to to backtrack too much here but like you know you said that you sort of wrote for animation um as well uh, like i know you talked about writing marvel method this time around for this comic but you've written comic scripts before mm -hmm. And aside from just, you know, the obvious stuff, like, you know, there being panels and word balloons and page turns and things like that to keep in mind, uh, how hard is it sort of for you to switch from writing comics to writing animation and vice versa and stuff like that? And I guess you could talk about the similarities between them and the differences at the same time. They're not, they're, they're close enough that it's not, it's not that hard. Um, 
you know, the uh, the main thing is that that is keeping in mind that animation has motion. So so in um, in uh, when I write comics, you know, a lot of it is about um, using the dead space to move things along the, the space between the panels and the space of the page turn and setting and setting that up. And and, uh, and it's a limitation. It's actually a limitation I like. You can't you can't write. Uh, a reaction shot. Now, I mean, sometimes you can. Sometimes you can break that. You can do the nine panel grid where it's just a head, and uh, and you can have time for you know a brief uh, a bit of dialogue and a stop and a reaction shot and the character's thinking. You you um, you have to be kind of very specific about those things. And sometimes they they just won't fit, especially if you've got a big action scene that you want to take up a bunch of pages later, which takes up a lot of real estate in the comic book and. In, and it can do in, a, in in animation, but not to the same degree. Um, so the main the, the main difference for me in animation was that uh, you had movement and persistence of movement. So you could stop and say he stops and he thinks about that, and that's going to be that's going to be something. And and say like here's a, a big action scene, and it's going to and it can fit without necessarily pushing a lot of dialogue out. Um, but then the constraints are. For what I was writing, the constraints were actually even more intense in um, in animation than they were in um, for a comic. Uh, an animated episode of a series is, is like 19 minutes, uh, not counting for uh, credits before and after. And you run through 19 19 minutes uh, translates to about 35 script pages. Uh, so you're, you you over. Right. That was the other thing is uh, I guess that's very similar to how I've written comics in the past. You vastly overwrite for animation uh, versus how much they're actually going to do. So it takes something to time out. Um, have I written enough? Have I not written enough? Um, but you run out of 19 minutes. Or even if people are just standing around talking all the time, you run out of 19 minutes really fast. Um, so judging the, the, the landscape and geography is really tough. Like, you know how many words can fit, can basically can fit on a page of a comic book. So you know how, you know, that if you have filled your 22 pages or 24 pages, whatever that means, as you know, whether you filled that most of the time, you know, the problem comes if you've overfilled it. And by the time you get the art back, you got to start editing just to get, make sure all the, the word balloons fit into the pages without covering anything up, you know, in, uh, in animation, it's like, you know, especially because you're going, you're not going to even hear recorded dialogue till months after you've written it. You have no idea how fast or how slow someone's actually going to speak, and people frequently say thank you. You'll, you'll when you write it, you hear it said basically very one way in your head, and when somebody gets around to recording it, they they say it in a totally different way, either because the director had a different idea or the actor had a different idea, and suddenly something that you thought was going to eat up like five minutes, ate up two minutes, or something that you thought was just a quick aside that would be like two minutes. They've spent like six minutes on it. Like, well, why are they still talking? This was not a two-page <laughs> monologue. Why is this still? So, you know, those are the things that they're, they're a little bit harder harsh, uh, harder to judge, but you're you're also not doing it in a vacuum. You're bouncing that stuff off the supervising director most of the time who does have some idea how long he's going to want these things to take. And then he will go and rewrite whatever he wrote to whatever he wanted anyway, so... Why did you write anything to begin with? That's really cool. That's a really cool insight into it. And also, I guess there's got to be something nice about writing for comics now, because when you're working with a company like Netflix or something like that, you send the script in, like, it's not like you get storyboards back or, you know, you see any of the pre-visualization, but with comics, it's got to be great to sort of see everything along yeah. the process. And you can make alterations and that sort of thing. I, I, every so often I'd get a phone call. They'd be like, well, we're changing this to this. Can you have them say something different? Um, but that would be it. I, I saw, I didn't see anything until I, I started to see like finished animation with no sound, which is really weird or uh, yeah. had only dialogue, but no sound effects or, uh, or music, which is really weird. Um, but, you know, the animation was done. So it was going to be in, and the voices were recorded. So it was going to be what it was going to be. Um, so that, and you definitely see it in like, like I finished writing uh, probably two years before, like all the episodes were done and it was getting ready to come out. So I had forgotten a lot of what was in it by the time I actually got to see it. Nice. Um, so 
you had mentioned also that you had done uh, or you you are still doing like film criticism mm-hmm. um so and you had mentioned that some of your other scripts were more uh detailed uh was that sort of from sitting and watching film were you sort of calling out camera angles in those more um lengthy yeah. descriptions very much so although it was also probably from uh, especially in the teenage years um being a, a, a tremendous fan and heavily influenced by Alan Moore. And if anybody's ever bought Alan Moore's like script books and he writes like really super, super detailed panel descriptions mm-hmm. that go in and his scripts can go on for hundreds of pages sometimes. And, and, you know, you're 16, you're going through that and you're like, well, I think this is the greatest comic writer of all time. This must be how you do it. Um, <laughs> so, so that was probably partly in my head, but also it was very much, from spending yeah, a lot of time watching movies and watching uh, and thinking about that. So when I'm thinking about the visuals, I, I am frequently thinking like, well, here's the camera, here's it. Like, I want this in two shot. I want this in one shot. This, I need to see like the whole landscape. I, I, and, uh, and I'm very much thinking about it that way and kind of writing it that way and thinking about it like, um, sometimes thinking about it like he needs to be moving entirely right to left for the entire for always he's always on the left side of the panel moving to the right side of the panel for the first half of the book because that tends to be our 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 film language for the good guy good guys move this way across the screen and bad guys move that way across the screen i'm going back to like john ford westerns um so uh, i'm going to keep him moving one direction probably so he's always in this panel even if even if it requires like tremendous um, uh, mental gymnastics from the artist to make that make sense from one panel to the other, um, unless you're just doing like a straight grid down. I'm like, you know, he's always gonna move in this way across the thing until we get to the flip side and then he's gonna be moving the other way because he's completely changed his mind and all stuff. I'm probably like vastly overthinking it. Um, I'm trying not to do that anymore. I think there was only like one time where I had to, where on on my previous book, Spook, where um, there was like a a a, a thematic uh, through line about dichotomy and about uh, um, uh, with the old the mind body body problem. So I was like writing down like, all right, these panels have to be on the left side of the page. And they have to be one on top of the other. These panels have to be on the right side of the page. It's just not going to make sense if is done any other way. And we're going to do that for like three pages. And I, I kind of, uh, um, my artist on that one is a really great artist named um, uh, Lysandra Starin. He draws Redneck now for oh, footage. Wow. And I, uh, yeah, he, so now of course I, I can't, I can't afford him anymore. Uh, but uh, no, it's great. He, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm super happy for I That means he sucks, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's awesome. Hopefully every art, hopefully the same thing happens to Raymond and every artist I have goes on and has like a, a giant book after me and leaves me in the dust because um, oh. I, th- I mean, I want them to have you know that that kind of success. It just doesn't like all right. I picked the right guy. He was too good for me, but um, but he we, he and I like for like the one time that happened in the second issue, we have like a long discussion. Like I, it really has to look like this for this specific reason. I didn't just tell him like do it, do it this way to do it. I kind of laid out like these are this is the very specific thematic reason. Um, I'm, we're doing it this way and I, I really want to do it that way. And then we got to the box, like, no, throw that out the window. I don't know. I'm way overthinking it. Let's just tell the story, get it out there and, and, uh, and make, and make it look interesting and, and people read through it fast and people can, can take from it what they, what they can take from it. That's great that you brought up. Um, that's a great method, but like, it's great that you brought up Alan Moore because that's sort of like always our reference point when we ask people mm-hmm. about their writing styles and things like that. And, um, Matt likes to bring up how like well what, what's the thing with like Dave Gibbons Matt like on Watchmen um, oh that he would just sort of go through the lengthy descriptions and like highlight like two lines and be like these are the, the this is what I really need to concentrate on to to do this panel I don't know I don't need to know that it's raining and the storm front came from the the southeast and all that kind of stuff so yeah exactly uh, yeah. So, so another thing about the the box, and you provided us with the the eight page preview um, story and and one, but you had mentioned that the box had a lot of previous owners. So do you sort of have like a uh, like a Bible or like a like the the world of the box, and you've sort of mapped out some of those the the previous owners uh, just mm-hmm. as sort of background for yourself. Yeah, and I and I had I had actually had done that uh, before I even wrote the the eight page story because I knew that I didn't know it was going to be the first story I did in the in the um, 
in uh, right after the eight page story. I knew like one story I wanted to do that was going to come up real early was going to be about it's the box's first owner coming back to to get it and trying to take it back, which is which is what this series is actually about. Is the box's first owner comes back and and wants it back and starts to clue Leo in on on um, some things he didn't really know about it and like you know it's not what you think it is. Uh, so I had, I, and, and they're, they're, they're mentioned some of like the, the previous owners and some of the things that happened to it um, uh, are mentioned um, sporadically across the four issues as, uh, as Leo, because a lot of what's happening um, besides sort of fighting for his life is Leo is finding out that, you know, he's, he's kind of taken this thing for granted, you know, for the couple of years that he's had it. And now he's finding things out about it. So I, I definitely had, I keep it loose. I, I've tried, like, I, you know, this whole process has been more about like keeping it loose and not, um, nailing myself down to anything too specific but I, I definitely had the it was with this guy and it was this guy and, and then it was this guy and it kind of disappeared for a while and it was here and then it kind of disappeared for a while and I had that as an outline and I definitely knew who the first owners were and I know who um like the three or four people who wanted who were going to be um directly in Leo's story early on so there's Tony in that eight page story then there's the original owners in this story and then there will, there's a couple more that are, you see hinted at by the end of this four. So if I get to do it, this is really successful and I get to do more, you'll get to see some of the other people who are, who are coming forward who want it. Um, so a lot of that's, a lot of that was already planned out. And a lot of it kind of, uh, especially, especially almost anything having to do with Claire, is, uh, which is changing some of the stuff in my line, which is why I keep it loose, developed heavily in the process of the writing of it. And that will change, I think, what I do uh, uh, in the future, but you know, a lot of those major elements, um, I, I I sat and thought about them early on, not knowing when I would get around to using them. Okay. And you do this uh, this with with issue one. You do this thing at the start where it's like uh, it's like previously on, and it just sort of mm -hmm. drops us into the story. Was that sort of your love of sort of like like uh, you mentioned, sort of eighties? Uh, like retelling or, or re, you know, going back in those detective stories was that sort of like, you know, how sometimes when you get a Marvel book, it'd be like, Peter Parker is here and this is what he wants. Is that just a, a way to sort of do that a little differently to drop us into the world there? It's actually something Red Five predates me, but it's something Red Five has always done. Okay. Uh, going back to their first books, you know, issue one would we'll always had a, uh, this is basically the world, you know, a, a brief setup that basically is like, this is the world that you're entering. So you, you have some idea about what the rules are and what kind of story you're getting into it. Right? And then every issue after that had a, uh, this is what happened immediately in the, the, uh, the issue that happened right before it. So, uh, but I like that because it, 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 I mean, there's something to just, just jumping into it in the store in the book tells you, uh, you know, what you need to know. And, mm -hmm. and I try not to make sure someone, you don't have to have read the entire presses in the first page. And I'm not going to do um, not anything against it because I really like them, but I'm not going to do like the Jonathan Hickman three or four pages of text about the world building it, <laughs> that, uh, you know, adds all, all the extra layers that make things really make sense in there. I try to keep it as, within the book as, um, as much as possible. I really actually like those things. I really dig Jonathan. I was going to say, do they actually make it make sense? I'm trying to think like they normally confuse me more. I, if you go back and like read them all together one go yeah i think so it's definitely made like decorum i i think i would be more confused by decorum if i wasn't reading the other things um, than if i was just trying to take the, the panels um they definitely seem designed that way but um i didn't want to do that so i try to keep it as like a, a short box like this is going to tell especially because i do the the eight page story was there which which among other things displays exactly how claire and leo met and why she's in jail at the beginning of the first issue and sort of what his most recent troubles were. And I knew that just the way things have worked out, it, uh, um, issue was one is going to come out before anyone's had a chance to read like that short story. Cause I haven't, I have now as I'm getting to the point of putting into the stores, I'm like, I have nowhere to put the short story. I mean, maybe it'll go out as like a free comicsology thing, or I've been looking for ways to maybe send it out as like an ash can to stores. You know, it's um, cause there's no way to gather and just hand it to people. Uh, mm -hmm. There's no, you know, live, person comics pro or anything so it's harder to to put those things out so um i was trying to make sure that like all of that really relevant information showed up there because otherwise he's going to you know be talking to this woman in prison and people might be more like who is she why is she important why is she in jail what are they talking about yeah and i didn't need people to be too lost by that 
That's so cool though. I think it's, uh, and it's one of the reasons why I miss, uh, I miss comic cons is for those supplements that you get from people and things like that. But I hope that gets like made it put into to something somewhere, but I, I like the idea of a sort of like, a like, you know, you're, you're opening, not like a, like sort of like, I guess to put it in like star Wars terms, like the opening crawl kind of thing. Like I watched Ad Astra last week, which is a pretty good movie, but that has like a, an opening crawl. And I kind of was shocked because I was like, Oh, I haven't seen that in a while. That kind of thing. Like it's, it's kind of great to see sort of that being embraced in storytelling where it's like, sometimes obviously it's kind of redundant. Other times it can be used really well to set the stage. So that's um, And like Matt said, that sort of kind of harkens back to sort of classic comic book storytelling as well, which is great um, without you guys just having to address it in the dialogue the whole time as to like, you know, hey, remember when this happened last time? That kind of stuff. Yeah, I hate doing that. You remember this thing that you would obviously know about because you were there that I'm telling you about. So people who weren't there would know about it. I was (laughs) like, I hate hate that. And I try to whenever possible. It's the cringy line of, as you know, and it's like, oh, geez. Yeah, like... (laughs) Yeah. yeah, I know. I was there. Why I was there. Yeah. I, I want I, someone to say that in the, an actual story at some point in time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, with uh, like, you know, with getting into the sort of like mode of the story, like being noir and things like that, like while you're writing, is there like anything like exterior like happening? Like, are you putting on like, like noir film scores or something like that to sort of get you in the mindset of like keeping the tone while you're writing? Not while I'm writing, because it ends up like I need. I, I get so easily distracted. I I used to write while with music on, and it, I ended up just sort of listening to the music and nothing. And I'm staring at my blank screen, and nothing's happening. So I I now got very much like it's got to be nothing. Nothing is happening. I'm doing more more writing like in the middle of the night when no one's awake, so no one can make noise and no one can bother me, and it's very quiet. But I do do a lot of that before uh, I start writing when I'm trying to get when I, I'm like what do I want the tone to be and thinking and especially when I'm outlining and it can be looser so I've, I've watched a lot of um, my favorite noir movies and a lot of my favorite thrillers there's not a lot of magic thrillers out there of that sort but uh, uh, but, but, I, but that wasn't like the tone I was going for I was going for much more of a you know if you will like you know a Michael Mann sort of very realistic modern noir thriller it just happens to have magic in it um, so I like watched a lot of those, you know, stuff like Heat and Thief and Long Goodbye and Maltese Falcon and uh, The Big Sleep and a lot of a lot of those kinds of things. To be like, this is the tone I want. So I'm gonna I'm gonna look at it, you know, watch them again. Although I've seen these movies a, a, a lot of times, I'm gonna go back and watch them again and just kind of really focus on it. So it's kind of like, um, you know, sometimes you'll hear, uh, you know, directors before they go off to start their movies, they'll make the entire crew sit down and they're going to sh- and show them like two or three films or whatever. They're like, this is the movie we're making. So everybody's got their head in the right place. And uh, so I do that to myself um, sometimes. Um, and then, you know, halfway I change mode and go like, actually, I'm not making anything like those. And, uh, <laughs> and that was a waste of time, but at least I, now I know I'm not making those. Um, so I, that's kind of how I, how I do it. That's really cool. That's got to feel nice to sort of have that moment of like, no, like no no exterior distractions or anything like that when you can only focus um that was a lot easier before i had kids now i don't know if i'll ever write (laughs) (laughs) so um i have a couple questions about uh red five as a as a publisher um so the 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 artist he had sent you guys like a, a portfolio of of his work uh was when you saw that early on, were you, did you know that he was one of the guys that you were hoping to, to work with? Yeah, we get, we have, we have a really large portfolio database. Uh, so we get, get them fairly constantly and have since, since it started. That's how I, that's how I actually, I um, ended up with Lissandro on my last book. He had sent us his portfolio while he was trying to find more and more work in the U S um, uh, and that's usually, you know, the first thing I will do, when I am um, when I am uh, ready to get something actually drawn, is I'll start going through our our portfolio database and uh, and uh, looking to see if there because I have like some art style in, in in mind. Usually, we'll have some art style in mind that you know. And I'm looking to see has anybody got something that either just jumps out at me or is somewhat close to to what I have in mind and look through it. Um, but we also we we are getting portfolios sent to us 
pretty regularly. So I'm always looking at those, clicking through them and looking through them whenever they come in and kind of ones that are really good um, are, uh, I file in the back of my mind. Like I want to come back to when I, I don't have anything for this artist, but I really want to write something that I see this person draw. So I'm going to put this in the back of my mind or I'm going to bookmark it somewhere so I can come back and uh, talk with them at some point in the future. Um, and with Raymond, it just, I guess it, it just, it just was um, kismet or something. Cause I had already written, uh, I'd written the eight page story and I was pretty deep into um, first issue when he sent in his portfolio. I was like, all right, I think this is the look I want. This is really, you know, I didn't know that was the look I wanted until I saw his preview. I was like, ah, this is the look I want. And um, which was, you know, they had like that really grimy, gritty street level uh, uh, feel that I was going for for this type of story. So I, I reached out to him immediately as soon as I saw it. And I was like, hey, what are you doing? Have you, have you, have you done much, you know, and, he's, and, and his portfolio had a lot of sequential work. So I thought maybe he was already working as a, an early uh, professional. Um, I was like, have you been in, you know, publishing anywhere else? What are you working on? And, and we got to talking pretty early on. So in that sense, things worked out really well. It just, it just, you know, kind of happened. Maybe I wouldn't, maybe I would have finished if, if his portfolio hadn't come in right when it did, I would have finished writing it, but maybe it wouldn't have gone right to drawing it. But because it did, we just kind of went right into the art uh, while I was still, uh, while I was still putting the finishing touches on, I was able to just keep the ball moving right away, which is, I guess, why it's able to come out. So for, you know, in my experience, relatively quickly from the time I actually started working on it versus waiting years and years and years, which is what some, I have a book, the first comic I ever wrote still isn't finished. <laughs> it's still like slowly working its way through the process of getting colored. One day I'll put a book out that's going to be like, this is actually the first thing I wrote, but I published four or five other series in the meantime from when it started to when it got finished. Because uh, some of these things just take forever. Awesome. And do you have any advice for people who are artists that are sending in portfolios? You had mentioned that one of the key things was you saw sequential pages. Yes. I'm guessing that like you also, you might see some folks are just sending you like covers and like pinups, like, and also with those sequential pages, um, not only to do like an action story, but do you feel like it's important to maybe do like a, like show that you can do like a, like a talking heads page mm -hmm. and, and, and make that sort of, you know, interesting to, to follow along. So do, do you have any advice there? Yeah. And it's actually both of those things because, because I do get a lot of covers and a lot of, and a lot of pinup art, which is fine. So yeah, the first thing I, I say to people, if someone who, you know, wants wants to be drawing, I mean, if you want to be doing covers, then yeah, just some people cover art, but if you want to be doing comics, you got to send sequential art and what I tell people. And, you know, uh, what I usually see is there's sort of um, one generic portfolio that's going, uh, especially usually going to the big two. So what I get, well, a lot of times what I get is um, is a superhero action scene. So I'm getting, so they'll send, they'll send sequential story pages, you know, maybe four or five pages, but it's about a, a superhero action scene. And that's going to look one way and that that's you can learn a lot you can you can really see you can handle like good angles and, and good body position and things like that but it's still one very specific form of visual storytelling seeing if somebody drawing a really good you know avengers fight scene isn't necessarily going to tell you that they're going to be able to handle the art on your uh, your your young adult uh, uh comedy where everybody talks in a bedroom all day or your your viking drama where people are are slowly traveling through medieval europe or something so um, I would say like, it's good, you know, send, send multiple different genres, send, you know, so send an, an acting scene. I kind of call it an acting scene where, you know, you have characters basically just talking and they're going through lots of, uh, but they're going through lots of emotion and not just mm -hmm. standing there as talking heads and they're displaying it in a way that makes sense, but it's also visual because it's, because the, the artist has to do all, you know, these characters have to act the same way an actor in a movie does. And the artist has to do the, the acting for, you know, as a writer, I can kind of get them the point on like, this is, this is the kind of emotion that should be coming out and what they should be feeling. But the artist has to find the mode for that and exactly exactly how that should be, how that should be coming out. So showing that you can do that, showing that yeah, you can tell good, good, sto good sequential stories in a variety of modes and a variety of styles. Um, uh, you know, I get a lot of, I get a lot of, superhero action sequentials and a lot of horror sequentials and you can travel tell a lot from those but but seeing like good drama acting sequentials helps a lot cool and with red five how did you guys handle uh 2020 and in COVID? were you taking it as a 
like did you guys say this is a year where we're gonna like maybe pull back or did you look at it as an opportunity that you know marvel and dc aren't making as many books we're gonna we're gonna make a push what what, what was your what was your what were your thoughts there it was very much well first it was more about you know we don't want to we didn't want to stop and pull back uh we wanted to get things out but it was but it was especially the first probably for five months, it was, it was really a line of, um, but how do we do that? Because um, so we were talking to a lot of retailers and a lot of retailers you know, uh, who were who were trying to stay open in some way, even though they couldn't have shoppers in their stores, and we're trying to uh, and we're trying to um, uh, do mail order books or, or or video sale books, and but they needed product to do that, and there were there were lots of discussions about how do we get the new products, people, what, what do we do, and. And it wasn't just a matter of, of the stores being closed, but the entire, every channel of distribution was closed. Like the week that, um, that everything shut down, the week that like the NBA announced it was, it was closing right before everything really started shutting down, that we had gone to press on, on our new series, Dragon Whisperer, and it went to press and then everything shut down our, and we print in Canada and everything shut down and the border closed. So, you know, I had like 3000 copies of Dragon Whisperer sitting in a warehouse in uh, Canada, couldn't cross the border. Trucks weren't going anywhere. They, you know, I, I couldn't get. I couldn't. I didn't physically have it. So I couldn't physically get it to retailers. And there was no nothing was shipping. That uh, at least from there, the, the 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 printer itself had sent everyone home and then closed down. I mean, obviously Diamond closed down. So even if I'd gotten it to them, they couldn't gotten anywhere. But I couldn't get product to alternate distributors. The printers were closed, so I couldn't get new product printed. So even with, um, there were a couple of like boutique printers that were working, but it was a matter of, can I, can I get enough of something made for the market? What is the market going to handle? Because uh, I'd be having to guess how many stores would actually be ordering and what they'd be ordering. Like, am I printing 500 copies? Am I printing 5,000 copies? What's the appetite versus how many people would go get something? So you're kind of in the blind there. And even then, how do I get it delivered to stores? So we were, we were fighting through that. And mostly what ended up happening for us was that stuff just sat in warehouses. Uh, we were, you know, you know, it, it just kept being told, you need to wait, you need to wait, you need to wait um, until basically, um, until basically uh, the border opened again, at least, mm -hmm. you know, to, to a certain extent at the end of May and the early June, we were able to start to both start getting new material printed a lot of stuff that was that basically just kept getting pushed and pushed and pushed and, and material that was in warehouse sent out but we had uh probably three basically the entire summer um uh was spent on diamond figuring out how it was going to both handle getting new books out and delivering the stuff that had already been printed it, it took you know they, they they started asking us to send the material in may and it took until august for a lot of that stuff to actually get to stores and there was a lot of what is that, you know, a lot of, you know, when is this, you know, I told you guys, this was, we wanted this for July. When, why are you sending it in September? What's happening? What is happening? And a lot of, um, you know, they were short staffed. There was a lot of confusion. So it was like three months just disappeared trying to figure out how to get material we did have to retailers, which was still sitting in a warehouse in Canada. And after that, it was like, all right, so we've got that going. Let's just keep going and pressing ahead. Um, I would like to have pushed further, but we had, you know, the sort of the side effect that a lot of the closure and the issue and the, the issues with um, COVID that stopped, you know, regular comics retail on our tracks stopped a lot of people who make comics mm -hmm. in their track too. So we had probably like four books for 2020 that didn't get finished because uh, for COVID related reasons, the people working on them couldn't finish them. Either they, they lost their jobs and had to go do something and couldn't draw or some of them got sick or all kinds of things happened and it was like all right i'm not going to finish this year this is going to go to next year and stuff just kept getting pushed further and further and further off the schedule so it was a tough year and does with red five do you guys uh have a con presence in in the states to go around and, and try to you know meet comic fans like on right. the floor and, and show them stuff so I, i'm assuming as we all you know with no cons for a year that's got to be an impact as well yeah. <clears throat> especially yes yeah we're at san diego every year we've been at WonderCon recently um we were talking about i mean this, for 2020 we we're going to get a booth at new york that obviously didn't happen we did some virtual stuff but we hosted a panel a virtual panel for small publishers for san diego we've done a couple of other virtual panels 
since then for other conventions. We do um, try to do a lot of ones here in the Southeast. So Texas has several big ones. And then as you, you know, move along the Southeast into Florida, and we have been actually expanding our, our con presence uh, up until this past year. Now it's been a year and a half, going to end up being two years, um, basically without any. So, you know, that's where we lose a lot of that direct customer feedback, especially on the small press side. I find more and more that I'm, I'm meeting a larger portion of our, of our readership at cons than I am in stores. Um, you know, more and more people are, are, seem to be who are potential new comic readers. They're going to go to like the big social events. They'll go to, <clears throat> there's lots of people I meet who are going, who will go to a comic convention who have never stepped foot in a comic store and probably never will. So they just, they do, they pick up a year's worth of shopping whenever they go to a comic convention mm-hmm. or they go and they look through Kickstarter or something and stuff so they can order on, but they're not, they're not using the, the, the classic direct. <coughs> so no longer having that channel cuts off a lot of, uh, a lot of regular readers, a lot of potential new readers and, uh, and a lot of cash flow. I mean, it, that, that for us, that hurt pretty bad. And so I, I think, you know, as we mentioned early on that this book is, is coming out in, in August and uh, it'll be in, in previews in June. So um, as we close up, let's sort of speak to the, to the fact that, you know, this is a book that you're going to have to, to go to your LCS, your, your, your local comic book shop and say, Hey, I want the box from, from red five um, and then have the shop, uh, you know, order it one to make sure that they're able to get it. And two, to sort of maybe even put it on the shop's radar. If, you know, if three or four people come in and say they want that, they might take a chance and, and put, you know, eight to 10 on a rack. So do you want to speak to the importance of pre-ordering a book like this? Exactly. And you'll hear it every time from both every store owner and every small sort of indie creator like me that, um, you know, the direct market's still where we sell, you know, comic stores are still where we're going to, where, where most of our books will end up and comic stores for small books. Um, none of them, you know, it, you know, it, comic stores can order Batman and Spider-Man pretty easy because they can look back at a 20 or 30 year history of what those books have sold and make their guess about how many they want to bring in on any given month. But nobody's ever seen anything like, <clears throat> like the box before. It's a, it's only a unique individual thing, which is, I, I think, what's pretty awesome about it, but it also means a, a retailer is not going to know how many readers there are for it. Nobody's going to know unless, uh, unless a reader goes up and tells them. So if uh, anyone who's listening to this thinks, you know, this sounds interesting. I'd like to see that book, that book. Um, um, it's not, you know, it's not like uh, um, larger publisher books that uh, you can just go and look on the shelf and scan the shelf and, and flip through it uh, and see if you might like it. In most cases, a store is not going to carry small press books for the shelf unless somebody tells them that uh, they'd be interested in it and then they might uh, they might go all right like four people have told me that they're interested in it so there's some sort of readership for this so i'm going to order like three or four for the stands as well mm-hmm. so if this sounds uh, at all interesting to you go and tell your uh, your comics book store that you'd like this book when it comes out go and look through your previews when previews comes out in june uh, go flip through it, flip to the page, to Red Five Comics, to the page of the box, and show it to your your local comic book store, and tell them uh, I'd like to order this because uh, they that might be the thing that puts it on their radar and then gets it uh, available on the stands for uh, someone else to read. You can never just rely on you know a semi interesting comic interesting comic idea ending up on the stands that you can kind of flip through because most stores just can't do that. They just sure. don't have. Uh, they don't have the freedom to do that. So you got to tell them you want it. And if anything I have said makes it sound like it's as cool a book as I think it is, uh, yeah, go tell your local comic book store. I'd like to uh, get a copy of the box when it comes out uh, in August. Certainly sounds cool. So I'm definitely going to be keeping it on my uh, poll list for June. Awesome. Thanks for having Thanks for coming on. All right. And- thanks for having me. Are there any um, like is there are any images or any place that people can go check uh, check Red Five stuff out? I'm sure you guys have a website, but I'm wondering is there any, any are there any preview images for the for the box up there uh, instead of oh, waiting till June? Bunches and bunches. So obviously, yeah, you can come to our website redfivecomics.com. You can come check out uh, our social media um, Red Five Comics on Facebook. Uh, there's uh, also a box comic page on Facebook and. Uh, um, there where you can see that I basically there are new images from the book being posted up there every day. You follow my Twitter feed at Josh Starnes Film. Uh, there are uh, new pages from the box are getting posted on my Twitter feed um, pretty much every day or my Instagram uh, at JV Starnes One. 
also has uh, new box images coming up every day. So you just can like scroll through the history there and uh, you'll see lots and lots of uh, box art and get a, a taste of uh, what's coming your way. Awesome. Well, we'll put links to all that social media and the show notes and a link to the to the Rev5 uh, webpage just to make it as easy as possible for, for people to check that stuff out. Great. Thank you. Awesome. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Um, well, Noah, uh, I know that you said that you're really interested in this book. Do you have uh, any final thoughts or uh, any final questions before we wrap up? Uh, nothing, except maybe, you know, if you if you think about it, you know, before june or august and you want to come back on and talk more comics you know if you're interested we'd love to have you back on it's, for sure, uh, sure. Great. You're, yeah. we can tell you're a wealth of knowledge yeah <laughs> yeah well, hopefully i haven't said everything that i know i'll have still interesting stuff to say in the future but yeah i'd love to come back very awesome. cool well, thanks, Josh. We're, we're really excited for this book. And uh, what we will do is, like I said, we're going to put links to it. But, you know, when when June hits, uh, we'll also sort of put a reminder out for folks that, hey, this is the time where the where the book is in previews. And this is the time that you really need to to go to the to the shop owner and, and either flip it open and point to it or, or send them an email and say, this is this is the one that I want. So we'll do that as well in June. Great. Cool. So uh, I'd like to thank everybody for listening. If you could give us a rating and review on the podcasting service you use, we really appreciate it. If you want to follow the podcast, we're on Twitter at ConstructComPod. Instagram is Constructing Comics Pod and Facebook is Constructing Comics. I'd like to uh, thank everybody for listening. Please uh, be nice to each other, be safe and go out there and make some comics. Thank you. <laughs>